everyone and welcome to Learning with Bell Vista Studios. I am so excited today to have Stella Collins on an episode. Stella is super inspiring for me. I met her over in London and she does a lot of work around neuroscience in learning and development. So she is known as the brain friendly learning professional. Um, she's an author, she's a keynote speaker, the brain lady, and she's also a consultant. So thank you so much for coming on the show today, Stella. I am really looking forward to learning from you. Thank you, Hannah. It's nice to see you again. Definitely. So I guess the first question is, what is neuroscience? Oh my God, that's a massive question. <laughs> <laughs> this could go in so many directions. What's, what's <laughs> How can you make it simple for people to understand what neuroscience is? The way I define neuroscience is it's the study of um, the brain and the body, you know, the nervous system and how that, how that works. Um, some people define it very precisely or more precisely um, and define it as sort of the, the mechanics of how the brain works. I use the mechanics, but I also use the psychology. I also like to think about some of the things that we learn. We, we are learning and constantly learning from sort of artificial intelligence and thinking about brains from different angles. So I have quite a broad definition of, of neuroscience. And I would say it's anything to do with understanding how the brain works and how we behave as, as humans. Love it. And, and, and I relate that to learning, obviously, because that's my, that's my field of, of interest. Yeah, that's awesome. Great answer. <laughs> So why do you think neuroscience is important for learning and development? So learning and development practitioners out there, why should they be considering neuroscience? Um, because for me, if you are a learning and development practitioner, what you're trying to do is you're trying to mess with people's brains. You're trying to change, you know, their attitudes, their knowledge, their behaviors, and all of that is effectively working with their brains. So for me, it's about understanding the, the tool you're working with better so the more you understand about it and, and I don't think everybody needs to be a neuroscientist I'll talk about that in a minute, but I think the more you understand about how brains learn um, and the different ways of learning because there's multiple different ways of, of learning multiple different things we learn the more you understand about it the better you can um, adapt tweak design deliver um, and, and kind of create an environment that makes learning happen more easily whereas if you don't understand it's, it's like it's like you know a really good driver um usually knows how a car works because if you know how a car works then you know you know when to accelerate when to brake when to you know do all the, i'm not i'm not an expert driver <laughs> but by understanding how a car works you can drive it better by understanding how a brain works i believe we can train better definitely yeah i totally get that like it's so true when we're we are, we're teaching people and we're helping people be better. And our brain is like the most important thing, really. Like it helps us do everything. So it just makes so much sense. So yeah. what are, what and, it's, and it's about seeing that brain in the bigger context as well, Hannah. So it's, you know, the brain is just, you know, kind of in, in, your, in your head, but obviously it affects your whole body, but your whole body affects your brain too. So I think for me, it's also important to think about, you know, what's the, the physiological context in which we're we're learning so we learn better when we're in a, you know a good physiological state as well as a good sort of psychological state that's so interesting so tell me more about that what do you mean by that as in so, or 
yeah, mood, um, physical health. Um, you know, if you're if you're an active, um, so for instance, uh, there's a lot of evidence to show that um, exercise helps to stimulate uh, brain cell growth, mm. particularly in the hippocampus, which is where we where we process memory. So if if exercising helps you grow brain cells, then it makes sense to exercise, and that people mm. who exercise are more likely. I mean, this is you know massively generalized of course but you know they, they are more likely to have a healthier brain and body which then all fits together wow that's so cool I actually I actually feel like I've experienced that if I have something on during the day that's going to be challenging for my mind if I exercise in the morning I know I'm going to be much more equipped like I didn't know if it was just like something in my head but I think you're right like you do feel like more clear and able to yeah take on challenges so yeah. that makes a lot of sense and also exercise does things like you know it increases your blood rate um your pulse rate it increases the amount of oxygen that goes around your body so it's not just the brain growth it's helping but it's actually helping your whole body work better which helps your brain work better and you know when you're feeling healthy when you're feeling good just everything everything works better doesn't it and, you know, right now people are really challenged because there's a lot of uh, people are highly stressed at the moment mm. and stress is really poor for learning. Stress really um, you know, reduces our ability to learn. So whilst there's loads of loads and loads of stuff out there at the moment, say, you know, learn this, learn that, you know, you you haven't got to go to work. You're not busy. I'm not sure who isn't busy, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> there are people who are busy. Um, actually, it may not be a good time for people to learn right now because they may actually be too stressed to actually go and introduce themselves to something completely new yeah so that's interesting if say you had like a group of people come into a training course that you were doing and you're wanting to teach them something is there anything that you can do to help them all get into a good mental state like if you notice that people aren't quite ready for yeah. the learning experience or don't want to be there or upset about something like how what do you do to manage that so, so I think you manage it for, for a start by starting really, really early. So you're persuading people that they want to come and, and, and they want to learn. So, so you're, not, you're not sending out, you know, here's a mandatory training thing. You must try, you must attend because that just already puts people's backs up, gives them a sense of fear. So yeah. you start before the training happens. You then set up your learning environment, and that's exactly the same whether it's virtual or whether it's it's face to face. But you set up your environment so that it's um, friendly, so that it's agreeable, um, you know, so that people feel comfortable in it. So you need to spend time for people to get to know each other and get to know you know the trainer, whoever the trainer may be. Yeah. Um, so you need to have, and you know, I mean, I know you do a lot of e-learning and things, even within an e-learning environment, people need to feel comfortable with the environment mm. before they can start working with the learning, the, the, the knowledge or the, the skills they're going to have to learn. So yeah, there's a huge amount you can do. And if, and if you see a group is struggling for some reason, you have to do something about it. Sometimes it's really simple things like, you know, the room's too hot, the room's too cold. They might be hungry. They might be tired. You know, there's this really basic primitive human things that we need to address first before we try and start getting into the, the the learning people need water they need fresh air so all those things are really important to, to sort of start people feeling like they, they want to learn i love that i feel like that's great because i think sometimes we can try to get people to learn 
a whole heap of content and just say, we've got this amount of time, let's get you through all of this. But it sounds like it is really important to get them into a state where they're ready to take in those learnings, whether that's taking a break or like you said, like yeah. the room's too hot. Like I, I don't think I would always think of things like that. So that's really interesting um, to think about things like that because it can have an impact on how we take in information. And, and also just how the room is set up. So, you know, your classic kind of, well, you know, rows of desks really, really yeah. put people off because that just takes yeah. them back to school, which for most people was not their, their best learning experience. But even things like the, the classic horseshoe of tables, that's not great for learning because you're actually separating people out from each other. Yeah. You're distancing them from each other. And okay, right now we're all supposed to be distanced, but <laughs> on the whole. <laughs> Mandatory. <laughs> yeah, on the whole. You know, we are social creatures and we like to connect and it helps people um, if they are in, a, in, a, in an environment where they feel much more socially connected. Yeah. So, so just the way you lay out your room can have a massive impact. We always, you know, we do quite a lot of work when we're thinking about physical training. We do quite a lot of work to make sure that we've got light environments, we've got um, temperature is right, that the... Um, the people are fed before they arrive or fed out as they arrive it's kind of food that is nutritious as opposed to being you know loads of sticky cakes and biscuits yeah. so that kind of environmental impact is massively important and then that that translates through to um, you know virtual too yeah i was about to say how do you do that in a virtual environment like if you're running a workshop virtually which is going to be happening happening a lot for people now how do you achieve that in that environment so yesterday we were running a, our first um, cybersecurity foundations program. And one of the things we do, we say we, we have quite a lot of prep work for people to do beforehand, which is part of the learning. They, they do a lot of kind of um, exploration of, of content and things before they come. But also we say, right, so you're going to be sitting in a, um, a webinar. Uh, make sure you've got access to a drink. Uh, if you need a snack, then, you know, have it, have it handy, have it with you. Um, halfway through, we encourage people to, you know, go and take five minutes break, whatever you need a break for. Um, if we can, we, we encourage them to stand up quite often. So we might even ask them to move away from the computer and go and do something. Uh, shorter sessions, we would never do a, um, anything like that for more than about 90 minutes. And then we send people off. And oh, wow. Okay. Nice. And we actually say to them, look, you know, make sure you go and get some fresh air and make sure you feed yourself. Don't just dive into your computer and, and be working online because that's that's not giving you that break you need yeah i love that something else that i was really curious about is novelty i know you speak about um incorporating novelty into learning to engage learners what's some ways that you can do that oh interesting <laughs> well for some people just just seeing a room that isn't a row of tables or a horseshoe of chairs is already yeah. novel yeah something but different there's a there's a balance you've got to get that kind of state of people feeling comfortable and safe but then the novelty helps them helps them remember. Yeah. So anything you can do that's different. So you might introduce uh, one of the things I sometimes do is actually to sort of switch the room around. So people expect the PowerPoint, if you've got a PowerPoint, to be at the front of the room. I would sometimes have that at the side of the room, for instance, so that you know it's kind of oh, that's that's different to normal. And um, so with the way you set your room up can be different. Um, getting people to participate in in kind of very different kind of exercises so one of the things we do on our um, brain friendly training programs we get people to physically build a brain but they're actually oh. 
being parts of brains and they absolutely that's love it cool. yeah um, because that's not some that's not a way they've ever discovered brain science before that they actually become part of the brain so getting people to physically act out models processes that's another wow. really good way it sounds like it's almost like stimulating the different parts of the brain like allowing it to use different parts is that right to help you learn things and remember things yeah because if you think about you know our natural way of learning we we haven't evolved to learn by you know we haven't even evolved to learn by reading books i mean i love reading books but not necessarily learning yeah um we haven't evolved to do that we've evolved to learn by experiencing by reflecting by doing by practicing you know that's that's the natural way of learning and, and by moving you know humans didn't sit down until quite a long way into their evolution so sitting down isn't really a natural way of learning you know actually physically doing moving around and and being social because we are very very social as well yeah nice and what about with um, giving learners too much? So almost like brain, because I know you can have cognitive overload where your brain's just like, oh, it's too much. I can't take in anymore. Um, tell me a little bit about that. So I think you can have, you can have all sorts of different overloads. So there's cognitive <laughs> overload, there's emotional overload and sensory overload. Oh, interesting. Well. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can get that. Um, and, and this is... Um, a reflection, a, a useful reflection for me. So for me, I like an environment that's very multi-sensory for people. But I have had people at the end of a day with us say, actually, I felt quite overwhelmed because there was so much going on. Okay. So not necessarily all cognitive, but there was a lot of sensory material. And they, they say that, you know, they felt there was so much going on that they were needing to reflect. So for me, that was, that was happened quite early in my career with one particular person. So yeah. I realized that you need to give people time to, to move away from all that sensory overload. Yeah. Um, so what was the, oh yeah, cognitive overload you asked about. Just excuse me, my head. There's so many different Can you hear that music? Can you no. hear the music? No, I can't. <laughs> okay, well that's all right. It's probably not going to disturb everybody then. Oh, okay, no. <laughs> Have you got someone playing music, a neighbor or something? Yeah, my husband. My husband is playing music. Oh, that's awesome. Just adds to the vibe. Okay. I can't hear it. Okay, but... <laughs> we'll go with it. It's not too bad at the moment. Yeah. Put some, if he puts on death metal, then we'll turn him deaf. Oh, I love it. Um, cognitive overload. Yes, you're asking about cognitive overload. So cognitive overload is when, you know, our brains just can't take in any more information. They're, they're, yeah. they're overload. And there's lots of ways that can happen. It can happen quite quickly. Um, so if I were to ask you to... I can give you a test of cognitive overload. Oh no, putting me under pressure. <laughs> and I'm not going to, I'm not going to make you do it for a long time. Okay. But tell me the month of the year oh. alphabetically. April. August. December. Yeah, and, and I don't know, I don't know them off my heart. So I'm sure you're doing, but that, that feeling of, oh my goodness. I've yeah, that's fun. Hold one lot of things in my brain, which, you know, I could, I could do the months. That's really easy, isn't it? And then yeah. I've got to transfer that into some other way of thinking. I've got to create a separate list in my brain. That's, that's an example of cognitive overload. That sounds like a really simple thing to do, doesn't it? Yeah, but it's but almost it's like I was like trying to imagine all the months and then sort through them, but then I'd forgotten what, one of them was, and yeah, I can, that is cognitive, cognitive overload, you're right. 
that's one example. And the other thing we do is we just fire lots and lots and lots of information at people. And we think by giving people information, they're learning. A, information isn't learning. And B, we can only process limited amounts of information. Our brains, whilst they're, you know, they're hugely flexible and we can, we can learn, uh, uh, you know, brilliantly well and we can process billions and billions of bits of information really rapidly they aren't infinite we need yeah. we need to we need to give them time to to um so you know brains are full of electricity and they're full of chemicals all those electrical connections are happening all the time but they actually need time to recover one one neuron connecting with another neuron and sending an electric connection actually needs time to recover after that neuron has fired so that that multiplies up multiple times obviously but wow. we can't just we can't just keep throwing stuff at them. They need time to to process, to reflect, and to embed. And and learning doesn't happen just by giving people information. That was actually one of my questions I was interested in. Turning learning into a habit. So how does the brain, like what you're saying, how does it get a piece of information and then yeah, with the neurons firing, create a habit so they actually do it? on almost autopilot, I guess, like it just becomes natural. I feel like that would be hard to do. How do you, how do you achieve that? Re- repetition, oh, can't even say the word repetition, <laughs> lots and lots of repetition. But you know, you're not like a piece of information doesn't necessarily become a habit. I guess a habit, you could, you could learn to connect two pieces of information that might be a habit. So um, if you think January, you immediately think February, for instance. Yeah that's that's a sort of i guess that's a habitual way of thinking isn't it that's, that's a connection and that is literally by repeating over and over again you know you, you've never as a child you would learn the months of the year for instance you'd repeat them over and over again you see them many many times repeated and that's why it becomes a habit because they're they're always repeated in the same order so it's that kind of regularity and basically you've got you know neurons i mean this is really really simplistic and I am not a neuroscientist. I, I've studied it, but I am not a neuroscientist myself. So I'm going to give you a fairly simple explanation. The brain but if you think about it, two neurons connect together to form a new idea, yeah. a, new, a new connection in some way. And that first connection is actually quite, it's quite wobbly. It's quite loose. It's quite um, sort of uh, not secure. But what happens is if they come together again, then this kind of myelin sheath, it's like a little fatty sort of um, substance, begins to start forming around them. There's a, a phrase you might have heard, it brains that fire together, wire together. And that's about saying that with repeated okay. encounters, there is a higher potential for those two neurons to connect together. And as it goes over and over and over and over again, as you repeat multiple times, that potential to connect becomes stronger until eventually they are effectively wired together. They say that it's actually very hard once you've got a habit to completely break a habit because those neurons will always have an attraction to each other. Wow. So how do you design learning so that repetition can happen? I design it so the learner repeats rather than the trainer for a start. So do they... So um, the way we design training is, is we, start, we start before people think they're coming to training. Ah. So we give... Okay. Yeah. So you start... You know, I mean, everybody before they get involved in training starts to start thinking about what they need to learn, um, 
but you know we, we so we do quite a lot of pre-work before the event whatever the event might be so that you're beginning to introduce people to concepts you're beginning to introduce them to um to, to understand why they might want to do this learning you know why that might be important to them so get some of that motivation stuff going and, and sending them so you're not asking them to learn something immediately but you'll introduce them to new ideas new concepts whatever it might be then when you're um when the, the training is happening the, the, so officially starting is perhaps a way of saying it then um, you want people to have multi-sensory experiences of what's going on so that they're able to make multiple connections in the future. Yeah. So if you just learn something just through one sensory modality, then you've only ever got one way to, um, to access that later on. But if you have different ways, you know, I, oh, I, can, I can remember what that smelt like and I can remember oh, what that yeah. sounded like and I can remember what that felt like and I can remember what I saw. You've now got different hooks different ways of getting into that learning haven't you so making it multi-sensory is is important um and getting people to explore the learning for themselves one of the things i think is really really important is at the start of a session is ask people what do you already know because then they can build on what they already know whereas if you just start throwing new stuff at them it's like oh my god i don't know what this is but if they already think oh yeah well i already know how to say the months of the year for instance whatever it might be or I already know how to pro you know we've been teaching cybersecurity. I already know some things about cybersecurity because I you know as a person using a computer everybody knows a little bit about cybersecurity. yeah um what do they already know and then can build on that so that's another really important thing. and then there's lots and lots of ways you need to repeat but obviously not just over and over again the same thing yeah but get them to um do different exercises, get them to do practice, get them to do tests. Testing is a really good way to get people to, to recall what they, what they know or to, or to repractice what they, what they are learning. And then you need to take it over time. So one of the times when we actually, when our brain actually um, processes the learning is when we're sleeping. So sleep is really, really oh. important to learn. Yeah, because that's when you're, that's when the the consolidation of memory begins to happen. Interesting. I've yeah, I can actually relate to that. I feel like if I'm even if I'm working on something at night and it gets difficult and I can't understand it, if I sleep and get up early and look at it, it's easy. Like I'm like I've looked at it so much the night before. Now it's I get it, so I can see how and that's. that's Probably partly because the night before you were beginning to feel tired, so you probably oh, overloaded your yeah, brain. It wasn't well. ready to take in anymore. Cognitive overload. But then, as you oh. as you slept, your brain was actually what happens tends to happen. I mean, again, this is simplistic. But what tends to happen is during the day, your brain um, is being bombarded by lots and lots of information. That information goes into your hippocampus, which is the memory sorting center. Yeah, and. Um, but at night, so, so say, for instance, a, a, an image comes into your brain. Your image comes in through your eyes, goes to your visual cortex, and part of it goes off to your hippocampus. So you've got this kind of visual thing floating around. At night, what happens is your hippocampus processes that image wow. and puts it back into your visual cortex. So it kind of puts it back where it came from, but it's like a second time of it. Wow. So that makes it a stronger, stronger memory. Interesting. That's so cool. 
<laughs> brain is so interesting. It is. It's fascinating. Oh. But you don't necessarily need, you know, like I said before, you don't necessarily need to be a neuroscientist to be a really good trainer. A lot of things really good trainers and good designers do. Yeah. They've kind of evolved and they've learned from, from experience or you know, good teaching themselves. You don't need to know it, but it does help you tweak things if you understand something about why. It, so, you know, understanding that sleep is important for learning. Yeah. I think it's really good to have training programs that actually go over time. So not just try and cram everything yeah. into one day, yeah. but actually give people time to consolidate bits of learning over time. Yeah. Love it. So on so got that, to sleep. let's say that you had, like, I would love to know what like the ultimate absolute best training solution would be taking into account neuroscience. If you had limitless budget, all the resources that you wanted in the world, what would that training solution look like? Like blue skies, neuroscience, amazing. What would you do? I guess the first question would just be to say, but what are you trying to learn? So, you know, are you trying to learn some knowledge? Are you trying to learn a skill, a behavior, a habit? So I think you'd have to identify that first because there's probably some differences. Yeah. But I suppose if, if, I mean, that's such a lovely question, really. If you had everything. Um, I think you would start with getting the person really highly motivated, understanding really why they, why they want to learn this. What is it for them? Yes. So perhaps it would be, yeah. So try, you know, a really, really in-depth conversation to find out what excites them and what motivates them and all that sort of thing. So you really, really do that analysis. And because most training happens is related to work, isn't it? What's the organization's goal? So you're actually tying that in as well so that it's not just the learner, but the context in which they are. Yeah. And then you would try and create an environment where it was going to be really easy for them to learn. And that would be not just a training environment, but that would be the organizational culture as well. So that they had, you know, their manager was completely bought into helping them support them. And they'd have a coach and they'd have a mentor and they'd have peers who were helping them and all sorts of other, um, yes, please a coffee. <laughs> Sorry. Coffee time. Too late for a coffee in Australia. Wouldn't, I won't sleep tonight. Yeah. Oh yes, yes. You don't want to stop. Don't want to stop. <laughs> so you'd have lot, and you'd have lots of opportunity for people to um, to to, to um, get their own understanding first. Yeah. And then you would be supporting them in stretching them to take that understanding further. So exposing them to to new ideas, novel ideas. Yeah. Um, but giving them multiple ways to do that yeah I guess you would stretch it over time so that you know it wasn't just one opportunity to do it and then lots and lots of opportunity back in the workplace mm, to practice and to get to get fantastic feedback you know the, the feedback they really need not the feedback that sometimes people want to give them um, loads and loads of feedback um, more opportunities to stretch and to try new things yeah and, and stretch it out over a really long period of time well or, or as long you know depends on what it is but you know to, to give them more opportunity yep. to, to for repetition and yeah time to get it yeah. into their memory so that it sort of stays it doesn't just yeah because i think 
I read a statistic, it might have been in your course, something around the percentage of learning that we actually take in after it. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it's like after a day of learning, we actually don't remember much of it. It's like. So are you thinking of sort of the ebbing house forgetting curve, maybe? Could be, yeah. Yeah. So maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's a really, really, really old psychological study. It's probably one of the early and it's really, really well known. Um, but Hermie Ebbinghaus was a, an early psychologist and he was basically testing his learning. But yeah. he wasn't testing contextual learning, relevant world-based learning. He was testing how well he could learn random strings of letters. So okay. quite a hard thing to learn. Yeah. But, you know, there's no context to that. Is there? Why, why would you want to do that apart from an experiment? Yeah. It's a bit random, isn't it? Um, but what he found was if he didn't, if he didn't, practice, repeat, go over and over it again. He just kind of read the random strings of letters. Yeah. Then he found that he recalled very little afterwards. Okay. So yeah. He, you can see his forgetting curve and it's about after about a day, he's, he's only remembering about 20% of what he'd learned. Yeah. And that is a useful, it's a really useful um, statistic and it's a really useful tool, but it's not ac like a lot of neuroscience and psychology experiments. It's not actually real world. Mm, yeah but so I'm quite sure like we've all experienced going to yeah. a lecture or a presentation where somebody tells you a lot of stuff mm. and you think oh yeah yeah that's really interesting I'm really going to remember yeah. that I've kept and then you go from that lecture or presentation and you I don't know you pick up your computer you answer all your emails you have a meeting uh, you go home you watch the telly and then you sort of you spend you're thinking in the evening what, what did I learn at that lecture because all you've done is you 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 learn you you encountered that information, but then you've just replaced it with lots of other experiences. So you yeah. haven't had time to consolidate it. So, so I think that's you know it's sort of the the Herming Ebbinghaus curve helps, but it's not entirely relevant. But I think it does explain the experience that we all have. So I'm thinking, like, is there anything that supervisors can do to support their staff in that repetition? Like questions they could ask. Or is that something that you do in your learning initiatives? I'm just thinking of ways that learners can be sort of kept accountable to do that repetition and keep it in their brain. So, I mean, there's, there's for years and years, people have said um, that uh, you know, the manager your, or your supervisor is absolutely key mm. and vital to your learning. Um, and I think that's true because if you, if, if you, I, I was once sent on a, um, an Oracle database course. Before I went, my manager told me nothing about why I was going. And when I came back, I had nothing to apply it to. So surprise, surprise, it was a two-week course. I know nothing about Oracle databases. I couldn't, I couldn't tell you anything. If my manager, before I'd went, had said, right, um, you know, I'm going to send you, ask you to go to this Oracle database course, um, perhaps they'd give me something to think about before I went to that course and then perhaps given me some real inspiration as to why I might want to do it perhaps told me about a project I was going to get involved in then when I went when I came back from the course you know I was immediately immersed in this project and then they were there helping me and supporting me I probably would have learned quite a lot about oracle databases yeah so it's it's the it's the environment I think you you leave and that you because training often happens outside of the work environment the context is different um, and it's that context that is vital to learning that managers can really 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 support but don't necessarily know what the right thing to do is or 
don't necessarily have the time to do it. Yep. So one of one of my sort of be in my bonnet is I think we should help learners understand their own learning processes mm. and recognize that, OK, my manager hasn't necessarily got time to help me. But how can I help myself? What can I do for myself to set myself up to be ready to learn? And what can I do afterwards to support my learning? So a lot of times people talk about, I think people often confuse content with learning. And content is just content. Content is just, you know, it's just there. It's, I mean, and it can, you can learn from it, but it's not the learning process. And I think, sorry, you asked me about managers, weren't you, and supervisors? No, this um, is good. I feel like you, like you have so much value and knowledge. I'm just like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm leaping from one thing to another. No, it's good. One of, the other, one of the other things I was thinking was that, you know, actually learning often happens in the context of work. Mm -hmm. Work that can, learning that can happen in the context yep. of work is really vital, which is why coaching can be really, and I don't mean sit down and have a coaching session, but I mean, you know, genuine managers asking really good coaching questions. So instead of you saying to your manager, how do I do this? They say, okay, well, well what do you already know about yeah. doing this? You know, what have you seen other people do that, do this what have you tried before what has been similar to doing this whatever it is um so i think that's where managers can play a real role in is in terms of helping people within the context of work and providing you know job aids and things that help them so that you're not always having to to think or to look but you know if, you, if you're just you know sort of just having a list of tasks you yeah. need to follow is actually a really good way to learn it because you've got the list you can do the task and then you can go back to the list and the next time you probably don't read everything on the list because you've got yeah. turn some of it into habit so really simple things like that can be really useful yeah love it this is amazing you're amazing <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else that you would like to add um about neuroscience any advice for people out there applying it to their learning um i think don't get <laughs> don't get too hung up on it because um and, and there will be people who will criticize you for using neuroscience so there are people now who are saying well we don't know enough about neuroscience to actually say we can use it in training and I, it's to some degree i agree with them because a lot of the pure neuroscience is done in laboratories on people in you know scanners um not doing realistic work-based learning-based activities um whereas for most of us we're learning in in the real world my my belief is the more we understand about the brain and how it works and the more we get interested in it and the more we begin to apply what we what we do know and what we can um sensibly uh, deduct from from research then the more the, the better our training is going to be because we've got an evidence base for it but that evidence base doesn't always come from the, the pure neuroscience. It comes from psychology experiments, again, which are often just really weird. You know, they're not, they're not real work-based. Yeah, some activity. of them are random. Yeah. Yeah, they're very random, some of them. But, you know, you can deduce things from it and, and, you know, observation of what really happens in the real world. But one of the challenges I think that we as humans have is we're, we're hugely flawed in our ability to perceive things. So we we tend to think that just because i'm just getting a coffee now <laughs> this is really live isn't you gotta it? have your coffee coffee is life can't can't do it without coffee 
where was I going with that one? Um, you were talking about just learning about it. So just understanding about it and knowing about oh, yes. science can really help you. And people are going to yeah. criticize, but you just need to start. Yeah, I, I think we need to, I, I think it's useful for us as L&D professionals to begin to understand and to begin to yeah. recognize what, what the evidence says. I was talking about perception, wasn't I? Our perception yeah. is we yeah. sometimes think things seem common sense or that, that we feel they're right when they're not necessarily right. There isn't any evidence to prove it. Yeah. Um, you know, learning styles was a great example. Everybody thought, oh, yes, that sounds, that sounds like a lovely idea, doesn't it? But there's no evidence to prove that learning styles have any... Yeah validity at all yes we need multi-sensory input but we don't have you know some people needing one type and one some people needing another all of us learn well from visual input so visual is really important yeah. um, but we all learn from multiply sensory input yeah so i think it's about understand i think it's about beginning to question what's good methodology what's good practice and that scientific kind of principle helps you do that so that you're you're able to sort of say, well, where did where did this model come from? Where did this theory come from? Is there some sound evidence behind it or is it something that somebody just and when I say invented, I don't mean they invented it maliciously or to be foolish, yeah. but they just based it on their own experience and experience is valuable, but it's not sufficient. So where do you find those resources and models and how do you get access to all of these amazing things <laughs> um partly through my own networks now because you you know you grow networks don't you so i work with other people who are also really interested in this sort of thing yeah um, i do loads of reading for myself i did a psychology degree so i already had a science background oh, cool. so i kind of you know that makes it have that interest yeah <laughs> i tend not to read really really deep science papers unless i really really get fascinated by something because they're not generally related to the learning world so i i do so there's some really good resources you can get um and i'm, I'm less familiar with the australian resources but um there's a, a paper called neuroscience news which comes out regularly has some interesting articles yeah. british research um digest british psychology society research digest um, other people's books so you know there's some yeah. fantastic books out there that are, are really really good um conferences there are some nice conferences out there on in terms yeah. of learning and evidence-based stuff so i i'm kind of a bit of a magpie i collect things from, from different yeah. places and and oh and at the moment actually we're actually going to do some genuine research Ooh. um yeah, so in my new company, Stella Labs, we're yeah. actually doing some research with the University of Antwerp. Wow. Looking at, um, it's really looking at the feedback people get and what feedback is going to help them um, build their learning better. So not just feedback in terms of what, um, you know, what do people tell them about how well they're doing, but we, we've got a platform, so we'll be collecting data and kind of, you know, understanding how they... Um, you know, does telling them they're doing really well help or does yep. telling them where they've made errors help? Oh, so we're going to use the data as well as, so we're going to use analytical, um, objective data, but also subjective data. So, you know, does, does feedback, very specific feedback from their mentor, use mentors, help them? Yep. Um, peer feedback, 
how does that help them? So we're really looking at all the different aspects of feedback and how that helps to support the learning journey from kind of beginning to end with a view to helping them be successful at the end. A lot of time learning happens and, you know, if you think of, of university courses or school courses, you yeah. know, you do a lot of learning and then at the end there's a test, but that test is almost, they're almost wanting, they're not wanting you to fail the test as such, but it's trying to see whether you've um, captured all the key points. But what we want to do is use feedback as they go through. So that by the time they get to an assessment at the end, the assessment will test everything they're doing. But by that time, they should, everything should be really, really well embedded. Yeah. So they're not having to swat and revise yeah. right at the end of the test. Cram because they should have learned it, that, that we've got this sort of building blocks yeah. embedded and they keep learning, you know, so they learn, you learn three key principles at the beginning, for instance, and then you keep building on those. So by the end, those three key principles have become just completely embedded and they're just, you know, things you, you do without thinking effectively. Second nature almost. But then you've built yeah. on it as you've gone through. So yes, yeah, so that's going to be some really interesting Very research. exciting. Well, I know you do a lot, like I did your neuroscience course on LinkedIn and I loved it. Like, it oh, was good. very interesting. I was like, oh, I feel like I'm learning so much. So for our audience watching today, I really recommend that you check out Stella. She has amazing things around neuroscience. Your book is on my list um, that I want to read. So did you just want to share with the audience what resources you have out there so they can find what yeah. you're doing and read more about you? And I can put it in the description of the video. So I have got the book there. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Actually, because I quite often have to look at it myself because I love it. Very book, pretty. you don't actually remember everything that's in it. So it's Neuroscience for Learning Development. That's um, I've got a, also got a book on um, webinars. So the webinar pocketbook that I co-wrote with Andy Lancaster. Okay. Um, is, it's not a book based on neuroscience, but it does. We do introduce the idea of what, how to do a brain friendly webinar. But it's very, very practical. Because for me, being practical is really, really important. It's not just the, the neuroscience, the practical application of it is, is the yeah. most important part of it. Love it. Um, I have a blog. So um, I have my old blog, which is stellalearning.co.uk, but also yeah. we have a new blog and podcasts at stellarlabs.eu. Yeah. Um, and we're going to be producing lots more. So we're doing, we're doing some interesting podcasts, actually. I'll have to, I'll have to uh, in, um, interview you, Hannah. Yeah. <laughs> the blog the podcast awesome. um and yeah and we will course as well sorry. your linkedin course it's called um what's it, the name of it it's called using neuroscience in learning development i think yeah. that's oh, on linkedin yeah. learning God, um so many things and we're running you know if people come to visit our stellalabs.eu website we're running um various open programs a lot of which currently are digital obviously yeah um so we're doing one on conscious learning starting in in may awesome sounds great thank you so much stella you have been so amazing today and i feel like i've learned so much from you and i know that our community will be really grateful as well um so yeah thank it's been you a pleasure so to talk to you hannah thank you and apologies for the dis distractions oh you gotta have your coffee it's just something you gotta have <laughs> i'm jealous <Coffee. laughs> All right. Thank you so much for being on the show, Stella. Anyone who's watching, please share with anyone who will find this valuable, which I know so many people will. Um, I think neuroscience does have a really good place in learning and development and Stella 
just shares great content on it. So check it out. And thanks everyone for listening.